Welcome to today's edition of Time in the Vineyard with Pastor Teacher Jeff Toring. Today's broadcast is being brought to you from the pulpit of Liberty Valley Church, Northfield, Ohio. Daniel 2.31, Thou, O King, sawest and behold a great image. This great image, whose brightness was excellent, stood before thee, and the form thereof was terrible. This image's head was of fine gold, his breast and his arms of silver, his belly and his thighs of brass, his legs of iron, his feet part of iron and part of clay. Thou sawest till a stone was cut out without hands, which smote the image upon his feet that were of iron and clay and break them to pieces. Then was the iron, the clay, the brass, the silver, and the gold broken to pieces together and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away that no place was found for them. And the stone that smote the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. This is the dream. And we will tell the interpretation thereof before the king. So here King Nebuchadnezzar has had a dream. And we went over last week that he lost it. It was one of those dreams where it's more of a nightmare. And then you wake up with a cold sweat and your heart racing and you can't remember any of the dream. And so he comes to his wise men, the astrologers, the magicians, all the people of his realm to try to find out what is the interpretation of the dream. And not only that, you have to recall what the dream is because it has gone from him. He has forgotten it. And so finally Daniel, the young prophet who by now may be around 15, 16 years old only, and he is about to give the interpretation of the dream. And so when we start out, he walks into the king's court, which in and of itself is intimidating to someone of his nature, a young kid to walk before his majesty, the king. If the scepter is not lowered for you to enter into his presence, there are uh, knights with axes that are ready to execute you. So now he has the challenge that he has to tell the king not only what his dream was, but he has to tell him the interpretation thereof, and always in light of danger. And so when you start out in verse 31, he says, Thou, O king, sawest, and behold a great image. But it's not the way that we read it. You have to think with the commas and the punctuation that is put in here for us in verse 31. If you read it well, what he says is, Thou, or you, O king, sawest, and you can hear almost a pity in Daniel's voice as he tells the king because he knows what it's like to be afraid. He knows that the king trembles over this dream. And what he's about to do is remind him of something that has brought him great horror. So he stands there almost with tremble in himself. And he says, you, O king, what you saw. And behold a great image, a massive statue. 
He says, this great image, it says, whose brightness was excellent. He reminds the king that when he was looking upon this image of different alloys, that the sun must have been incredibly bright in his dream because it was reflecting off of the sparkle of the gold and the silver and the copper, that it was so bright, so much so, it says the brightness was excellent. It probably hurt his eyes. It was so bright. And he stood before you, and look at it, it says, and the form thereof was terrible. So he stands before this statue in his dream. The statue itself is inflicting terror into this gentleman. It has this sense of immense danger of standing on it. So like when we stand before great buildings, maybe in New York or downtown, where the building is so drastically high and you stand at the bottom and you see the thing actually kind of sway here and there, and you see the majesty of it, it is somewhat frightening. And then the way that this is explained, he knows that this image is incredibly top-heavy. So he knows this is a dangerous place to be next to this big statue. He says, the form thereof, it was terrible. The magnitude of it was enormous. I remember during 9-11 watching how the events played out. And there was a person who I think was in another building calling into the radio. And they had him live on the air speaking about how this first tower had fallen. And he was giving his view because he had been in a building that was right near there, several stories up as well, standing in the window, beholding as the first tower slowly crumbled. And he could see it come down right, right past him. And then beyond him, and he could look down and see all the rubble. He saw people jumping off of the building. He witnessed all these things. And so he was on the phone with live on TV giving his commentary. And you could see in his voice was trembling at the fear of the magnitude of this thing crumbling. And then as the second tower went down, you can hear in his voice, it began to be weaker and weaker, where there was pauses in between his words, and then the man began to cry. And this is what you normally you would say, Oh my God. This is the thought of Nebuchadnezzar as he stands before this massive statue. Because it's not just a statue. He knows that this statue is, there's a language to it. This statue is communicating something to him, but he doesn't understand it. He knows that this is something of a threat. This is incredibly dangerous. This thing could come crumbling down and crush him at any minute. And so that's why he asks his astrologers and all the wise men, not only do I want you to tell me the dream, but I want you to tell me the interpretation of the dream. Because he recognizes there's something that's being said here through this image. And so the fear of it, it says the form thereof was terrible. And Daniel tells him and reminds him of the fear. Verse 32, the image's head was of fine gold, he tells him. His breasts and his arms of silver, his belly and his thighs of brass, his legs of iron, his feet part iron and part clay. And you looked at it until verse 34. Then you saw 
looked and gazed on it till that a stone was cut out without hands, which means there had to be some kind of eruption or earthquake or some kind of something of great magnitude that a stone would just come busting loose from a mountain and fly through the air so large that it crushes down with a crushing blow this image upon his feet. And it says that it hit the feet, and again it reminds that the feet were of iron and clay and break them to pieces. And then we have a colossal collapse, which was his fear that would happen. So as, as in a nor normal nightmare, your fears that are within your subconscious appear, and this enormous statue, this image, does come crushing down as he feared. It says in 35, then was the iron, the clay, the brass, the silver, and the gold broken to pieces together. And look at it, it says, and not only did it fall, but it became like the chaff of the summer threshing floor. And in that era, how they separated the corn from the chaff, they would throw it up in the air, and the kernels of wheat would fall to the floor, and the junk part of it, of the husks, would fly through the air, and the dust would just fly around, and the wind would blow it away, and they would keep throwing it up and down in the air, until finally all that was left was something that was a profit. All the dust then would fly away. And so he, that's the only way that he can explain the dream, is by something related to him. This is what it was like. It was like the chaff that blows in the air. So again, this dream, when the stone comes out of the mountain and crushes it at its feet, it not only knocks it down, it absolutely pulverizes it to the point where it turns to dust. Again, very much like the towers of 9-11. They just came so crushing down under so much weight and so much velocity that it actually pulverizes into dust. And he says then, and after this happens, there was no place found for them, and the stone that smote the image became a great mountain. And so right before his eyes, that huge boulder that came flying out, probably of a different mountain, uh, becomes a huge mountain in and of itself of grander majesty and splendor. That's your dream. So he tells him, that's what you dreamed. And if you notice throughout this whole thing, there ain't a word of interruption. The king is floored the whole time at the memory of his dream. So then we have to go on to part B, which would be now, tell me the interpretation of the dream. Verse 36, this is the dream, and we will tell the interpretation thereof before the king. Verse 37, the interpretation begins. Daniel, skillfully and carefully, I believe, tells him what all this meant. What does this mean, all these things that I've seen? Now you've got to remember that King Nebuchadnezzar and those of Babylon are incredibly superstitious. I mean, they knock on wood and do stuff like that. I mean, and they mean it. They're not just saying, oh, well, you know, knock on wood, you know, or something. They mean it. They're very superstitious. So he definitely is attentive to what this means. Verse 37, and again, notice that there are commas. When Daniel speaks, he says, Thou, you, O king, art a king of kings. For the God of heaven hath given thee a kingdom, power, and strength, and glory. And wheresoever the children of men dwell, 
the beasts of the field and the fowls of the heaven hath he given into thine hand and hath made thee ruler over them all. Now, we've already had several sermons going through Daniel. What is the thrust of the book of Daniel? It is the transfer of dominion, total global power, world dominion is going to be transferred, lost from Israel, given now to a time where the Gentiles would rule the world through their monarchies and different governments, until finally we come time where Jesus comes back, crushes down the revolt, and again, dominion is passed. So again, this is following suit. This is his dream. This is what the interpretation is. He says, all right, you're the head. You have absolute world dominion. The, from the beasts to the people all over the world, you are a global ruler. Thou art the head of gold. And then he moves down in verse 39. He says, And after thee shall arise another kingdom inferior to thee. Which is interesting, isn't it? Because how is an inferior kingdom going to overtake a, a, another kingdom? So what does he mean by that? How can a kingdom that is inferior overtake and overcome another kingdom? You'd have to have some more strength or something. Nevertheless, this is what he says, After thee shall arise another kingdom inferior to thee, and then another third kingdom of brass, which shall bear rule over the earth. And then a fourth kingdom. And so what he does is he goes through, and the, the first section of the image is gold, which he says, this is representing your kingdom, the kingdom of Babylon. Then the next one is of silver, yes, and then of brass. And then we move our way down. Now, here's how we begin to study prophecy, and here we're going to learn normal formula. Because he doesn't give you all the details here. It's the same thing when you read about Jesus' life. You read the Gospel of Matthew, and he tells a story. Then you go over to Luke, and he tells the same story, but it's, it's, it's got a whole bunch more details, so much so that you're like, I think this is the same story, but it's, it's so much different than the story that we just read in a different Gospel, because what he's doing is, is he's explaining, and it's not contradicting, but he's explaining the view of what he's seen. So we look at this, and I can explain to you what the back of this pulpit looks like, and then somebody else is going to give you... A, an explanation of what the pulpit looks like, but from the front. It's, it'll be completely different, but it doesn't contradict each other. The details are just different. And so prophecy is like that, and we learn that because what he is doing is he says, all right, there's going to be a kingdom that comes after you. It's going to be inferior. And then after that, there's going to be another kingdom that comes and wipes that one out. And then there's going to be another kingdom that wipes that one out. But see, when you read through the Bible and you think, I don't understand what's being said here. Just keep reading. It'll come. The idea is line upon line, precept upon precept, here a little, there a little. You're going to get some bread over here, some breadcrumbs, some breadcrumbs, some breadcrumbs. And so if you just turn over to Daniel chapter 8, just a few pages to the right, Daniel has another vision, slightly different, but on the same topic. In verse 19, Daniel says, And he said, Behold, I will make thee know what shall be in the last and the end of the indignation. Again, he's talking about the future dominion transfers. He says, For at the time appointed the end shall be. The ram, now this is just a different vision, but of the same thing. The ram which thou sawest, having two horns, now this time though, are the kings of Media 
and Persia. Line upon line, we're building it. Over here in our passage, he says there's going to arise another kingdom that's inferior. Over here in this vision, he gives you more details and tells you by name who they will be. A little further, verse 21, and the rough goat is the king of Grecia. The following king, the following empire then, will be that of Greece, the Greco period. That's the order of events. Babylon was ancient Babylon with the seven wonders of the world, the hanging gardens, King Nebuchadnezzar, all that stuff that we learned in our typical history books. Who came right after that? It was the Persian Empire with the Trojan horse and all the things that we learned of the Persian Empire. What was after that was the Greco period with Alexander the Great. We learned all these things. Who took over after Greece? What would be naturally the, the next kingdom? It would be the Roman Empire. But this is way before that time. And the Word of God is telling us to encourage us that your life is not out of control. Every facet of everything in history is marked by the book of God and is written by His hand. The Jews, God's people, they're taken into captivity. We're wasted. I mean, we're wasted. This cannot be the way that God planned it to be. Actually, it is. And it's not out of his control at all. So stick with it. He who loses his life for my sake shall find it. When you're flying the plane and you're in the clouds and the sun goes down and you're in absolute pitch darkness, just follow the gauges. Don't worry about what you see out the window. Don't worry about out that window. Don't worry about out that window. Just follow the gauges. Follow the book, read the book, read the book, and do what it says. And everything will be okay. Because we're going to die. But we want to die well. Back in our passage then, we know what he's saying. Because we're learning how to become students of the Bible. And so he's telling us clues, and we're going to put these clues together so that we understand what God expects from us as good stewards, as good soldiers of the cross. Verse 39, we'll start where we left off. He says, well, first Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, you're the head, you're the gold. Full dominion. Now notice, though, after thee shall arise another kingdom, but it's inferior to thee. So what he's saying is, is that the Medo-Persian Empire in some way was inferior than that of Babylon. Well, then how did they take them over? If you look at the dream and you notice the sections that are of the statue, gold, silver, brass, and iron. There's a reason for that. He's teaching us something. Every time you come down in the section of the statue, it decreases in value. Gold, silver, copper or brass, iron. But what else do you notice about these alloys? They become less in value, but they come harder in structure. Gold is a soft material, and as it comes down, it becomes less in value, it's inferior, but yet it becomes harder and stronger in material. 
And so what happens is, is he's going to explain what God's opinion is of the governments that are to follow. He says, the next government that is coming under you is inferior. And when you look at these governments, the first government, that of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, it, what he says goes. If his scepter isn't lowered, you're done. If you magicians, if you have the court and you have the higher, I mean the highest of the court, the astrologers, the magicians, the wise men, even the very Chaldeans, if you don't tell me exactly what I want to hear, you're all dead. Done. Crushed with an iron fist. He is the monarch of sovereign power. If you go down and you look at the history, into the government of Medo-Persian Empire, but then what you have is you start to come down, and it's not the same way. They don't rule. They're, they have a, a system of the oligarchy. But you have, these, you have these other men who are so incredibly wealthy and elite, they have a lot of say, too. Then you come down to, into the Roman Empire, and then you have what's called a republic. We had Caesar who really was just a, a spokesperson. Who ran the Roman Empire? Who established Pax Romana? The Roman Senate. They actually had elected officials on which our government is based off of. We the people, for the people, of the people. Yet they took over. The metals became stronger. They had more military power. So what you have is, is when, you, when you're a full monarch, you have an iron fist. You just crush down any rebellion. If they don't do what you say, crush them. Done. But with an oligarchy, we've got to kind of agree a little bit. So then what you have to have is, and this is if you, if you read your history, there has to be a secret police. That you have to kind of have somebody do your deeds for you. You can't just crush people alive because what if you don't agree? What if all the oligarchs don't agree? A nation divided cannot stand. See the weakness in this? And then you come down to a republic, and we think to ourselves, well, that's, that's the best kind of government, is the democracy. We the people, for the people. We have some power. We, we have some say. And we only think that in our minds because we're an American. Because our republic, our democracy, is based off of the gospel. But if you give a government of democracy that is not based off of love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself, and thou shalt not steal, and, thou, and all the Ten Commandments, if you remove those, what do you have left? You have anarchy. Don't you see our government turning kind of crazy? Do you not see that our government is divided? And it's becoming crazy. And it's bleeding into society. So we have shooters all over the place. We have all this craziness going on. We have craziness going on. I mean, we have the best economy in the world right now. We've never had such a strong economy. I mean, it's going, it's just humming along. The stock market, everything is great. But you have one side of the aisle, I don't care what he does, they will complain. I mean, our president right now could sing happy birthday the best way possible, and the other side of the aisle would be like, you, you, you sang it off key, it wasn't the right key. <laughs> Some, I mean, it's, it's absolutely ridiculous. And then you can infiltrate very easily. You want to change our nation to be Islamic? Just congregate all in one area, and you can outvote. So we have, naturally then, we have a Muslim in Detroit. Because that's just 
the way it works. It's weakness. That's what it is. Now, we like it because we're based on the gospel. But go back to the Roman Empire and look at their republic. What did they do to the Jews around 70 A.D.? We just don't like God's people. So they came in with legions of Roman soldiers and crushed their temple down to absolutely nothing, burned it with fire, and they killed so many of God's people and crucified so many God's people that Rome was running out of wood in order to crucify them so much by people that they elected. So when we're looking at this, and we've got to keep in mind, where are we going in Daniel? We're heading towards an antichrist. And when the government becomes so anarchy and so chaotic, the people will begin to beg for a leader of an iron fist. What we need is a smooth-talking iron fist commander. And that's where we're going. We're setting it up for a political leader who is an antichrist that we're going to see in chapters to come of Daniel. So what then he says, he skips over and then he goes over to the fourth kingdom. Verse 40, the fourth kingdom shall be strong as iron. Their democracy will be terrible. Iron, it's worthless. But they can crush you down. So the fourth kingdom shall be strong as iron, for as much as iron breaketh in pieces and subdueth all things, as iron that breaketh all things shall it break in pieces and bruise. Now, a typical prophetical biblical teaching, they leave out the church age completely. That's why Paul says this is a mystery. This time of the church where the Jews are not in power and they're not leading through. So what you'll do is if you find the timelines of biblical prophecy, you can come along and everything fits nice. Babylon, Persian, Greece, Rome. And then something kind of just goes off kilter because in between that is known as the church age. It's where we live now. So you have hundreds of years. You have centuries that are not found in the scripture. It's just gone. It's a, Paul says it's a mystery. So what you have in between verses 40 and 41 is our time. It's the church age in between. Now, when it says in verse 40, there may be a reference, and I'm not sure, there may be a reference to Christ himself at his first coming, because all the prophecies talking about Christ say that they will bruise his heel, talking about the cross. Christ will come back and crush his head, the serpent's head, but there will be a bruising of his heel. And so when you look at it in the end of verse 40, it says that this iron will break all these. It shall break in pieces and bruise. It's a good chance that he's referring to the cross there. But then in between verses 40 and 41 is where we live. And then it ignores that completely. And then verse 41, we're going to move on to the remainder, which are the seven years of the trib. It's the last portion of prophecy. And look how it's explained here. And whereas thou sawest the feet and toes. Now notice the explanation. It's part of potter's clay and part of iron. It's a little bit Roman. Iron. 
but not all the way. It's, it's mixed with clay. The feet. And the kingdom, it's going to be divided, but there shall be in it of the strength of the iron. So what he's saying is, is the form of governments will be similar to that of the iron that's explained. But for as much as thou sawest the iron mixed with the miry clay. And then you have a division, because it says the kingdom will be divided. And then verse 42, it shall be divided into toes. And as the toes of the feet were part iron, kind of Roman, and part clay. So what we have is kind of a Roman Empire that comes after her peak power. There's division into ten toes, which later on in Daniel we'll learn that those are ten kings, ten different nations that come out of this. Now this is where you have to have, you have to remember what sermons were previously in the book of Daniel. Where did we end last week in the book of Daniel? We ended with Babylon being crushed. And then Jesus comes to put down the rebellion. And it's all about the crushing down. Revelation 17, 18, and 19 is the crushing of Babylon. Okay? So we have to keep these things in our mind. So these things are divided. We have somewhat of a Roman Empire. Ten different kings come out of it. But if you remember, Babylon was called the mother of harlots. Right? What do you have to be in order to be a mother? You have to do what? You have to give birth. And what happens when you give birth? Your children look a lot like you. Not exactly, but they look like you. And they act like you, unfortunately. <laughs> Some of you. <laughs> What we have is a mother harlot is giving birth to toes. The kingdom is transferring down. A little bit Roman. It's iron, but it's mixed with clay. It's weak. It's even weaker. It's even more able to be, well, it's just a whole lot more vulnerable for an Antichrist. So 42, as the toes of the feet were part iron and part clay, as the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly broken. There'll be a confederacy. There's ten toes. They're, they're kind of united, but some of the toes, some of the kings of the kingdoms, they're not so strong. So it's partly strong, partly weak. And if you look at where the Roman Empire used to be, where now we call the European Union, some of them are very strong. Some of them are very weak. Their economies, some of them are crushing down to nothing. Some of them are doing well. We have Brexit. We have all these things taking place where the Roman Empire used to be. We need to know what's going on in the world. So there are some nations in this confederacy of this, there are some that are strong, some that are weak. Verse 43, and whereas thou sawest the iron mixed with miry clay, they shall mingle themselves. Now this is a very difficult verse. They shall mingle themselves with the seed of men, but they shall not cleave one to another, even as iron is not mixed with clay. You can't mix iron and clay. You can separate. It doesn't merge together. It's iron and clay. You can stick it together in a wheelbarrow, but you still have separate iron and separate clay. It doesn't melt together. And he says with the seed of men, 
you look at your nationality and you say, well, you know, some of my some of my folks come from Ireland, you know, and some some of them came from from Czech, some of them came, and you, you can go through your nationality. You notice that that is beginning to erode. They're intermarrying people. The, the borders are going away. You ever wonder why people are fighting for the United States not to have any borders? What's the matter with you? You want people just to come in, whatever, however, and however many? Who would, you gotta be insane to think that that's healthy for a country. Why would you think that? Because that's the devil himself pushing his, pushing and pushing himself, getting us ready for him to make his stand. We're going to intermarry. We're not going to have different nations. We're going to have a global one-world people, a one-world government, and a one-world currency. They're going to mingle the seed of men, but they won't cleave to one to another. It also actually, if you study prophecy with prophecy, which is how you let the Bible teach itself, the Bible tells us that right before the return of Christ, it'll be like as in the days of Noah. And those of you who know, recognize this already, the seed that mingled with men was angelic. It was demonic activity, which created what we know of as the giants, or Nephilim. And I don't know, if we might be talking about a little bit of both. But he's giving us details of how this is all going to pan out. Verse 44, And in the days of these kings, the ten toes, at the end of the seven-year tribulation, Shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed? And the kingdom shall not be left to another people, but it shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. Forasmuch as thou sawest that the stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, divine, that it break in pieces the iron, the brass, the clay, the silver, and the gold, all the full statue crushes it down. The full time of the Gentiles. Because what's interesting here is that stone comes down and crushes the feet of the statue. But it shows here that all the metals are still there. Notice that. It's the full Gentile time. He's crushing down all of it. They're all present in this vision that he sees. And it says that the great God hath made known to the king what shall come to pass hereafter. And the dream is certain, and the interpretation thereof is sure. Now how do we know? Because here's the question. The Revelation tells us that all this crushing down will be against Babylon. Right? Revelation 17, 18, 19. Babylon the harlot. But this vision tells us that it's Roman. So which is it? Well, if you look over in Peter in the New Testament, there's an interesting thing as Peter finishes, and we're about to finish. In 1 Peter chapter 5, we know from history, not necessarily in biblical verse by chapter and verse, but we know through church history, which I don't put a whole lot of credence into because it's fake news, most of it. So you can only, I mean, it, the history has been rewritten according to the spin who wrote the history. 
But most of the history will tell us that Peter himself, at the end of his ministry, was the pastor at Rome. And so then you have the Catholic Church that teaches what? That Peter was the first pope. And therefore, you have the papacy, the Roman papacy. This is where they say their first pope was, which is, this is not true, Peter was not a pope, but whatever it is. What I'm trying to establish is that Peter, according to most historians and almost everybody agrees, that Peter at the end of his life, before he was crucified upside down, was the pastor at Rome. But here in his letter, as he finishes, he starts to write a benediction. Look at it in 1 Peter chapter 10 and we'll close. He says, and this is a typical end of the way they end their letters, but the God of all grace, who hath called us unto his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after that you have suffered a while, make you perfect, establish, strengthen, settle you. To him, now look at, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. By Silvanus. A faithful brother unto you, as I suppose, I have written briefly exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God wherein you stand. Now look. The church that is at Babylon, elected together with you, salutes you. And so does Marcus, my son. What he is saying is, is he's saying his goodbye at the end of his letter, and he says, hey, by the way, the church that I'm pastoring at Babylon salutes you. What he is saying there is that even the people, the citizens of Rome called themselves and admitted actually were Babylon the harlot. So it ain't which is it. He's just letting you know exactly the Roman government there is actually Babylon the harlot. Because the mother harlot gave birth to other harlots and she's still alive today waiting for the time to give power to the Antichrist. In all, it won't be a war, it won't be a struggle. They'll just vote him in. And then the power is all his to do whatever he wants. Daniel chapter 2. You've been listening to Time in the Vineyard with pastor teacher Jeff Toring. Today's broadcast was brought to you from the pulpit of Liberty Valley Church, Northfield, Ohio. For more information, you can call the church at 330-554-7606 or check us out on the web at libertyvalleychurch.org. That's libertyvalleychurch.org.